If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 145, where we're going to look at some more of the attributes of God. It's been a great encouragement to me to know how this series has impacted many of your lives. I I know it's impacting my life, just taking time to look at God. It changes you. It gives you a whole perspective on life. And what's strange is a lot of times your trials don't change, but you change in the midst of them, and pretty soon they aren't as big a deal as they were before, even though they've stayed the same. But God, by His Word, changes us. And that is great to hear how God is changing you, and and I am thankful for that. And I would ask you to pray for me as I try to put these lessons together. If you look in your bulletin, it says I'm preaching on the infinitude of God, and that's not true. Um, I started thinking about it, and I thought, I cannot do another infinitude-type sermon um, after doing the greatness of God, I felt pretty wrung out, and I just thought, well, you know, we'll just ignore that for a while. And um, I'm trying to get all of the harder attributes of God done with first, because they help you understand the simpler ones better. And so, this morning, we're going to be looking at the transcendence and imminence of God. And, and <laughs> that's easy. Um, every week, I... I, I study Psalm 145 and I look at other scriptures and I have a whole stack of systematic theologies and books about God and commentaries that I read and, and uh, it's, it's really hard to put into words um, descriptions of the infinite God and so I would just remind you that you get what you pray for and so uh, pray for me so I can bless you so you can bless God. In Psalm 145, we've looked at the sovereignty of God, we've looked at the eternality of God, and we've looked at the greatness of God, and so now we come to the transcendence and imminence of God. Words that many of you probably don't even know what that means, but after today, hopefully you will. And this morning, we're going to ask and answer three questions concerning transcendence and imminence, the transcendence and imminence of God. First, we will define each attribute. Second, we will support each attribute from the scriptures. And third, we will explain how each attribute applies to your life. And I just want you to know that that uh, every week after I go through all my study and I have all these notes, uh, I always have way more than I can tell you in the time allotted. And so Sunday morning, I usually get up early and I sit down and I go through a massive editing uh, process. And so this morning, um, I had about an hour and 15 minutes worth. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to cut that down. And after I was done, I had an hour and 20 minutes worth. And so if, if, it, if it seems this morning that I'm preaching with reckless abandon, it's because I am. And uh, we are going to get it in. I know we can because we did it last service. Barely. I mean, we went over a little, but hey, it's the Word of God. All right, what is transcendence? You look at verse 3. We looked at this in detail last week. The text says, Great is the Lord and highly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. This verse contains a word that is loaded with implications. It's the word unsearchable. Yes, it refers to God's greatness, but It refers to other things besides God's greatness. Remember, we defined the word as beyond the limits of searching out. 
Not only does that word imply that God is great, but it also implies that God is infinite, and it also implies that God is transcendent. Transcendent. Now, if you don't know what transcendence is, Webster defines transcendent as exceeding usual limits, extending or lying beyond the limits of ordinary experience, beyond comprehension, transcending the universe or material existence. You're saying... So what did that say? It basically means beyond our reach, beyond our ability to know or grasp. Since God is very much different from us, he transcends us. A deaf and blind man cannot see anything or hear anything. And even though those things are very close to him, there are things all around him that he could see if he could see, and things all around him that he could hear if he could hear, yet he cannot hear and he cannot see, so those things transcend him. They are beyond his reach. But God's transcendence goes beyond Webster's definition, for he does not just exceed the usual limits. He exceeds all imaginable limits. He is so radically different. His infinitude in all of his areas that we know about, and I'm sure more, maybe even an infinite amount, I don't know, of attributes that we don't even know of. He is infinite in all of those things, and it makes him beyond the grasp of understanding completely. It would be more probable that an amoeba could understand all the complexities of mathematics than it would be for us to understand all the complexities of God. This prompted A.W. Tozer in his work, The Knowledge of the Holy, to say, quote, We must not think of God as highest in an ascending order of beings, starting with a single cell and going up on to a fish and to a bird and then to an animal and a man, to an angel or to a cherub and then to God. This would be to grant God eminence. Even preeminence. But that is not enough. We must grant him transcendence in the fullest meaning of the word. Forever God stands apart in light unapproachable. He is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite. While the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. The caterpillar and the archangel, though far removed from each other in the scale of created things, are nevertheless one in that they are alike created. They both belong to the category of that which is not God and are separated from God by infinitude itself, end quote. Many many of us have heard of the Crab Nebula. The Crab Nebula is a huge gaseous form out there in outer space. It is the result of an exploding star, what is called a supernova. The Crab Nebula is just gorgeous. It's beautiful. When you look at it with a telescope, it's just, it's neat. It's got all these different colors and like tentacles. It almost looks like a giant, you know, multicolored jellyfish out there in space. And what is interesting about the Crab Nebula is that The star, when it's exploded, was witnessed in 1054 A.D. by Chinese astronomers. 
What is also interesting is that the Crab Nebula is 6,000 light years away, which is not very far away compared to most of the other stars in the universe, let alone our galaxy. 6,000 light years away. A light year is the distance you can travel in one year at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, which would be 18 trillion, 900 billion seconds to get there, which would cause you to travel, and I, my vocabulary ran short here. I went up to billions and trillions and zillions, and then my vocabulary stopped. It was 3.52 with 16 zeros added to it. If you traveled... That many miles, which would take you 6,000 years, if you could go the speed of light, you would finally reach the Crab Nebula. It is beyond our reach. No one will ever get there because it is, transcends us so greatly. And if it were not for astronomers and their telescopes, we would not even know that that Crab Nebula existed. It transcends us. It is so way out there that you can't even see it with the naked eye. Now just think of how many lifetimes it would take just to get there if you could travel the speed of light. It would take you some 85 lifetimes to reach the Crab Nebula if you each lifetime was 70 years. Light travels so fast, if you shined a flashlight at the moon, it would be there in a second and a half. Now get this, when the Chinese astronomers saw the supernova, the exploding star that resulted in the Crab Nebula in 1054 AD, they were not witnessing the explosion of that star, they were not witnessing a supernova happening at that time, no, it happened 6,000 years earlier in 5000 BC, right after creation. They were merely witnessing the light that finally got to the earth in 1054 AD. That's what kind of distance we're talking about, and that is a close distance compared to the universe, but it is nothing compared to how far God transcends us. God is even more transcendent than the Crab Nebula or the farthest star in the farthest reaches of the universe. But part of our confusion when we start talking about how God transcends us is we often take it into distance, like the Crab Nebula. But when you think about it, God is ever-present. He is everywhere present. And you cannot escape His presence. And so it's not a matter of distance. It's a matter of knowability. God is near in proximity to everything. But He is transcendent to those who wish to know Him completely. Most of us have radios in our car, in our home. And you can have those radio stations at FM radio or AM radio. If you take a lot, uh, electronics, you'll learn that it's frequency modulation, FM, or amplitude modulation. Now, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't matter. All you know is you flip the switch, and AM comes on, you flip the switch, and FM comes on. Now, what if you only had an AM radio? How many FM stations could you get? None. What if you really tried hard with that dial? Could you get any FM stations? No. Why? Because an AM receiver does not receive FM. And that's how it is with God. He is like those FM signals. 
Do you know right now this whole building is saturated with FM signals? They are going through the walls. They are flying all around this room. They're going through your head. Can you feel them? Can you hear them? No. They are beyond your ability to grasp. They transcend you, though they are everywhere around you. That is how it is with the transcendence of God. Ephesians 4.11 tells us that God is over all, through all, and in all, but he transcends us infinitely. You need, if you're going to know God, you need to have the God receiver. And how? what is that receiver? Well, it is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. The Word of God is what enables us to receive information about God. This is the revelation of God. And as we look into this book, we are able to know God. Not completely, but know some things about God. But you know what? Just having an FM receiver doesn't cut it either. You could go get a brand new one that worked perfectly. But I'm telling you, if you don't plug it in, no FM. You have to have power. And in this case, God's Word and the Holy Spirit illuminating our hearts is what energizes us so we can understand the transcendent God. And if it were not for God writing His law in our hearts, if it were not for God reaching out and showing Himself in creation, and especially if it were not for God and His Word, we would not be able to know God because He is so far removed from us. Now, what did the scriptures tell us about God's transcendence? Well, since we're crushed for time, listen, you can follow along in your mind. Write these down, maybe. Job 7, 11, 7 and 8. Listen to this. Job 11, 7 and 8 says, Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? And the implied answer to those questions is, No, no, nothing, nothing. You can't discover the depths of God. You can't discover the limits of the Almighty. You can't... What can you do to to discover them? Nothing. What can you do to know them? Nothing. He's beyond you. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens... For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You're talking the Crab Nebula at 6,000 light years away. I'm telling you there's, there's stars they see out there at 100,000 plus light years away. And God says, you want to know how far my ways and thoughts are away from yours? Way farther than that. God transcends us. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said, or speaking to the Pharisees, said, You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Paul in Romans eleven thirty three and following says, Oh, the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Plain answer, no one. Or who became his counselor? The implied answer is no one. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back again? The implied answer is no one. 
As you search through the scriptures, you discover that almost all the terms that explain God's transcendence explain God in a sovereign, transcendent way. He is high in his throne, like Isaiah 40 that Lou read this morning, lifted up, sitting above the vault of the earth, sitting above the universe. The people of the earth and all the nations are like a speck of dust on the scale. The people are like grasshoppers. They're nothing. Meaningless before him. He is so exalted. And almost all of them speak of his sovereignty. And since we took such a four weeks to look at that, we're going to not spend any more time there. But God is transcendent. He is above you. He's beyond you. This prompted Isaac Watts to write this of the transcendence of God. How shall polluted mortals dare to sing the glory of thy grace? Beneath thy feet we lie afar and see but shadows of thy face. Sure, you can know God a little bit through this tiny little book of God. But it's not even close to what there is to know about God because he is so transcendent. And how should this apply to your life? How do you live in light of God's transcendence? One, you realize that the gulf between you and God is huge. It is so huge it should produce a great reverence and respect and awe in you. So that when you're worshiping and when you're living and when you're praying, you reverence this incredibly transcendent God. You should realize you are far below God, farther below God than a caterpillar is below the archangel. Secondly, the transcendence of God should cause you to trust God even when you don't understand why things are happening in your life. You know, people love to ask, but why? Why is this happening to me? Well, the real question is, why aren't you swimming in the lake of fire? That's where you deserve to be. But you just need to realize that you don't know why. And God doesn't tell us all the whys. He tells us what to do. Trust Him. Obey Him. He doesn't give us all the whys. And as far as the heavens are above the earth, so are His ways and thoughts above yours. And that's why you don't know why. And so you can trust Him. Because He transcends you. Third, the transcendence of God should remind you that God loves you. Even though God is far above and beyond us, yet by his grace, out of love, he has made it possible for you, a finite, sin-cursed creature, to know him, the transcendent God, through faith in Jesus Christ. This is incredible. We looked at it in communion this morning. And fourth, there's a warning The warning is this, beware of overemphasizing God's transcendence. Beware of thinking that God is so big and so large and so separate from us and so different that we can't even know him, that he's impersonable, we just can't have a relationship with him, he's like electricity. You know, there's some power there, but you know, I can't get to know electricity or electrons. There are people who believe this. That God is unapproachable and impersonable and that you can't know him through the scriptures. And these people are called deists. The deists believe in what is called deism. It's a view that God basically started things, kind of got things rolling in creation, and then kind of just stepped back and, you know, let it happen. So now all the things are kind of happening by a random chance. Deism believes that God cannot be known through the scriptures 
Because he is only transcendent. This faulty view of God was taught by Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who lived in the early 1800s. And you know, you, we, we mention guys like this sometimes, and you think to yourself, you know, well, who do I care about Soren Kierkegaard? I don't know Soren Kierkegaard, he's dead. How does he affect me? Well, let me tell you. Kierkegaard believed in what was later to be called a theology of despair. And since you can't get to know God through the scriptures, and since he is so transcendent, the only way you can get to know God, according to Kierkegaard, was that you needed to come to the end of your reason, stop thinking, and take a blind leap of faith. And somewhere in there, you would have an encounter, your own little personal encounter with God. And you're thinking to yourself, well, who in the world believes that? A lot of people. As a matter of fact, Kierkegaard's theology then trickled down to Swiss and German theologians Karl Barth, Emil Brunner, and Reinhold Niebuhr, who also taught different aberrations of Kierkegaard's thing, that you know, have this I-me encounter with God, this real weird stuff. Not through the Bible, not through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, but through this, this leap of faith into this, you know, your own personal thing. And this false doctrine then trickled down through the ages into rationalism and finally into the church today. And we see it in the seeker-sensitive movement where experience is elevated above the word of God. First, you reject the sufficiency of scriptures. Second, you believe against the scriptures that God is transcendent and imminent. And third, you invent your own doctrine of how to make contact with God. And that's what's happened. People all over the world, and especially in the churches in America, are looking to experience God. They want to feel God. They want to embrace God with their senses. This leads them to interpret their emotional highs and lows and feelings and intuitions as God speaking to them. When in reality, God is not speaking them to all by those means. They wrongly seek experiences for guidance rather than the word of God, which the scriptures tell us we are to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, the flesh lusts against the spirit. The flesh and its desires are evil. That's why Paul says, Romans 7.18, No good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Your flesh lusts for evil. He describes the flesh as warring against the spirit, lusting for pleasure, for feelings, and for what is sensual. And fleshly men like to please their flesh, and so they invent doctrines of the flesh to make them feel good. When you study the scriptures, you discover that God wants us to live by our minds, not our flesh, our senses. That is why when you look at the scriptures, you find Satan always appealing to the senses and God always appealing to the mind. In 1 Peter 2.11 
Peter commands us to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. In 2 Peter 2, 18 and 19, Peter, speaking of the bait that false teachers use to deceive people, says, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice with fleshly desires by sensuality those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. Paul said the same thing in Colossians 2.18. Speaking of false teachers, he says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement, the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. False teachers entice people not through the mind but through the flesh. They teach a sensual or fleshly form of Christianity and a wrong view of God, a view that says God is only transcendence, leaves you with only your senses to try and figure him out and get to know him. But God is not only transcendent. He is also imminent or close or near, especially with those who have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you are truly saved, you can know God through his word, through your mind, not through your flesh. One of the all-time classic texts on this is Romans chapter 8, 5 through 7. Listen to what Paul says here. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds in the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul goes on to say in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to this world, that means the world and all of its fleshly desires, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. People, we must war against the flesh, not feed it. You study the scriptures and you note how truth is something that we need to grasp with our intellect. God says in Romans or Isaiah one eighteen, "Come, let us reason together." Paul says in Ephesians 4.23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In Philippians 4.8, after listing many good things, Paul says, think, dwell, meditate, ponder on these things. God is transcendent, yes, but he is also imminent and he has revealed himself through his word so that we, through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, can know the transcendent God to some degree. So what is imminence? Well, we've already mentioned it briefly. Imminence is kind of the opposite of transcendence. It means God is near to us, close to us, not spatially, but near to us in a relationship way. Imminence describes God's closeness with his creation. The Moody Handbook of Theology defines imminence as God's condescending to enter into a personal fellowship and live with those who have repented of their sins and trusted in his son for their salvation, end quote. And that's a great definition. And in Psalm 145, we see that very same thing. Look at verse 18. Notice what the text says. After talking about God being the king, being lifted up, being unsearchable, sitting on his throne, having dominion and majesty, just inexpressible, he says in verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him. Isn't that great? 
the transcendent God is near to all who call upon him. This word near is the same word that describes something that is very close, intimate, or near in proximity to something else. It's the same word used in Deuteronomy 4.7 where Moses says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? And the implied answer, there isn't any. God is near. It's the same word used in Psalm 34.18 where the psalmist reminds us, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. It is the same word used in Isaiah 55.6 and 7 where it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. I I looked up every occurrence of this Hebrew word and I looked up every occurrence of the word where it talks about God being near to us. And in every single occurrence but one, there's always qualifiers given for how we are to be near to God. In Deuteronomy 4, 7, God is near to all who call upon him. In Psalm 34, 18, God is near to the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. And it makes you wonder if this is the same thing Jesus had in mind in the Beatitudes when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. Why? Why are they blessed? Because those are the people God draws near to. And you could say they are the only people God draws near to. And then Isaiah gives us no less than five criteria for being near God in Isaiah 55, 6, and 7. You want to be near God? You must seek God. Two, you must call upon God in prayer. Three, you must forsake your way of life. Four, you must forsake your wicked thoughts. Five, you must turn from those things and turn towards God and pursue Him. Then He'll be near you. And only then will He be near you. These kinds of people are humble, broken, and God draws near to those kind of people. He doesn't draw near to the stubborn, obstinate, self-righteous people who are proud and unrepentant. He is far from those. That's why Proverbs 15, 29, Solomon says this, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. He's far from them. In proximity? No. He's near everybody in proximity because God is everywhere. He's far away from them, relationally speaking. Well, just as all those texts qualify the kind of person God is near to, so... We see the same thing in Psalm 145:18. Look there. The text doesn't just say the Lord is near to all who call upon him, but look at the rest of the verse. To all who call upon him in truth. God is near to those who call upon him in truth. But does God draw near to those who are in rebellion? who are obstinate, who will not submit to him, to people who want to redefine him, to people who want to have God in their terms? No. God is far from the wicked. He is far from the wicked. And when our country was attacked by terrorists and all those people were having the big prayer rallies and everything, I couldn't help but think of this. 
God was not hearing their prayers. They're the prayers of the wicked. And he does not hear them. Listen to what Deuteronomy 145 says. Israel had sinned. They hadn't repented. Then they cried out to God. And this is what Moses said. Then you returned and wept before the Lord. But he did not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. Psalm 1841. David speaking of his enemies said they cried for help. But there was none to save. Even to the Lord. But he did not answer. David, speaking of his own life, said, If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. God, speaking of the wicked in Proverbs 128, said, Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Solomon in Proverbs 28.9 says, He who turns, his, his, turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. The Pharisees, who rarely had anything right, had this right when they said in John 9.31, We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. This is why James rebuked his people that he was writing to because they were only praying to feed their own lust. They were praying because they wanted to serve it on their pleasures and their own happiness, not the glory of God. And he says, you ask and you do not receive. Is God imminent? Yes. Is he near? Yes. Is he close? Yes. But only to one group of people, people who call upon God in truth. It makes you wonder if Jesus had this psalm in mind when he's told the Samaritan woman, those who worship God must worship him in spirit and what? Truth. Someone said it this way, if God seems far away, guess who moved? It wasn't God. He's everywhere. He's always present, isn't he? You can't get away from him. He's near. He's close. He's imminent. To those who are humble, broken in spirit, contrite of heart. To those who are walking according to his word. So if God seems far off, it's not God who has moved, but you have moved by your sin away from God. And the only nearness that you'll ever feel from God if you are truly a Christian and you are living in constant rebellion is the nearness of his discipline. David described it this way in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Oh, there was the nearness of God, but it wasn't very good, was it? It wasn't very pleasurable. Many Christians have pet sins which they feed in the cavern of their own heart. Like little monsters. And they feed those sins and they try and keep those sins hidden. And they can from other people, but not from God. God sees them as the dead carcasses as they are. And when you come before God and you know you aren't right with that person, you know you've sinned against this person, you know you're indulging in this sin or that sin, God does not hear your prayers. The only prayer he wants to hear from you is a prayer of confession. And repentance. If you are an unbeliever, the only prayer he wants to hear from you is a prayer of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ because he does not hear the prayer of the wicked, only to those who call upon him in truth, not error. If you have sins in your life, they'll be like an iron 
curtain to keep you from a close walk with God. So when you can't get close to God, be careful that you don't turn to your flesh to try and find closeness. One of the errors of imminency is this. Just as transcendence, that God is just can't be known through the scriptures and through reason, you try and go through this feeling thing. So in imminence, as you know God is close, but you don't want to deal with your sin because you know he is close. You know he sees right through you. So you play this game with God where you try and partition off your mind and your life where, you know, I'm going to kind of pretend to be a Christian over here, but I'm going to ignore these things because I, whenever I talk to God, see, I know he knows that I know that I'm sinning here. So I'm going to just try to pretend that that area is not happening in my life. And people who do that, they want to feel good because they feel terrible. Why? Because God's hand is heavy upon them. So what do they do? They turn to the flesh. They try and find forms of Christianity that make them feel good when really they need to just deal with their sin. And then they can approach God and boldly approach the throne of grace to find help in a time of need, find joy, find peace, find comfort. But you can never have that if you're in rebellion against God. Don't mistake feeling good with feeling God. There's one more O in good. Now, what do the scriptures tell us about imminence? Psalm 139, 7 through 10 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Polite answer, nowhere. Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn and dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. You can't get away from God. And if you are his child, he's got you. Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24, God says, Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heavens and earth, declares the Lord? Paul speaking to the Athenians in Acts 17, 27 and 28 said that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. He's there. Physically speaking, God is close, but he is near to all who are humble and broken in spirit and contrite of heart. He is there. And what does this mean for you in your life? It means this. That you can know God now in your life through faith in Jesus Christ. You can know the transcendent God. It also tells us that when we have trials in our life, God is there. Right there. We don't have to go to the prayer chapel. We don't have to go anywhere. He's there. All the time, He's right there. Waiting for you to talk to Him. Waiting for you to trust Him. He's there. He's near. Because God is always near, we know He will protect us. And we know because God is near, always near, that anything that happens to us only happens to us because His grace is sufficient to get us through that thing. Because God is near, He can be found by those who seek Him is another application. 
We saw it in Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. If you are willing to call upon the Lord, if you're willing to forsake your wicked way, if you're willing to forsake your wicked thoughts, if you're willing to turn and embrace Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, God will be near. If you aren't, He'll never be near. Ever. You'll never have a relationship with Him. God is transcendent and He's also imminent. Listen to these two scriptures. Psalm 113, 4 and 9. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and the earth. I like that. God has to bow down to look at heaven. But listen to this in verse 7. I love this part. He raises the poor from the dust. And lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He makes the barren woman abide in the house as a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Some people on this earth suffer greatly. Some people on this earth don't get any recognition. They just serve God faithfully all their life. And I want you to know, when Christ comes back, they will sit with princes. And rule and reign forever and ever. Isaiah 57, 15, I love this verse here. Notice the contrast between transcendence and imminence. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on high in a holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That is so great. The transcendent, almighty, all power, infinite God comes down to a certain group of people called the humble, broken, and contrite of spirit. I hope that's you. Oliver Wendell Holmes, writing of God's transcendence and imminence, said this, Lord of all being, throned afar, the glory flames from sun and star, center and soul of every sphere, yet to each loving heart, how near. Lord of all life, below Above, whose light is truth, whose warmth is love, before thy ever blazing throne, we ask no luster of our own. Isn't that great? Let's pray. Father, we come before you so thankful that you are transcendent, that you are so far beyond us. It gives us comfort knowing that you have ways that aren't ours, and even though we can't understand things yet, You understand. We are thankful that you have bowed down and are also imminent with us, near, not only in proximity, but near to all who call upon you in truth. Father, if there's anyone here who has sin in their heart, Father, who either knows you and has never really dealt with some sin, and Father, they've been far from you, I pray that right now they would confess that and do whatever they need to to make restitution. And for those here who don't know you, who you've always been far from, even though they've liked to think in their heart that they've known you, but they know they've never experienced any closeness, any transformation, any work of the Spirit in their life. Father, I pray that you would grant them repentance so that they might believe right now in their heart, trusting only in Jesus, that they might be saved and changed into new creatures. Father, we just thank you for your word. May we love you with our mind and our spirit. And may we not look to the flesh to give us direction. We pray this in your name. Amen.